welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Welcome back to Fracture Line, everybody. Today we have Dr. Benji Christie. We're really honored to have you on, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we like to have the guest hosts at least introduce themselves, give us a little bit about their practice, where you are, what you're doing, what you're passionate about. Thanks for having me. I'm in Macon, Georgia, and uh, I'm a trauma critical care and general surgeon at uh, Atrium Health in Avocent, which is, uh, you know, we've, we were the medical center of Central Georgia for a while and recently aligned with uh, Atrium out of, based out of the uh, Charlotte area. We're part of the Mercer University School of Medicine. I'm one of the uh, associate professors here. I'm the program director for our general surgery residency, and I'm also the associate director for our level one ACS verified trauma center. We wanted to first talk about a couple of papers that you just had published. The first of which is entitled, How Many Screws to Use? A Report of Outcomes After Surgical Stabilization of Rib Fractures Where Less Than the Manufacturer Recommended Screw Number Were Applied. Give us a little background on this paper. Yeah, so uh, to me, this is kind of an honest moment. Um, and I would imagine a lot of people fail to get three screws on either side of a fracture and are probably faced with the decision, do you do anything for this fractured rib, provide something, um, some degree of stabilization that may help or improve the patient's pain or respiratory mechanics, or do you do nothing because if you can't get three screws, the manufacturer says you can't get three screws, what's your what's your safer play or what's your, uh, you know, what decision do you make in that scenario? And I generally try to get two screws. I've never left one. But, uh, often, you know, specifically posterior, as you uh, kind of encroach upon the paravertebral space, you may not have enough purchase to drop three. And, um, and so we just kind of went back and cataloged everybody that we could find, reviewed images that we had access to, and just counted how many times and where we were short on the recommended three screw per side of a fracture count. You know, it wasn't a tremendous amount, but, uh, but more importantly, we were able to track x-rays and uh, clinical encounters, you know, in, deep in the recovery period. And we were comforted that we didn't have any unwanted outcomes, any kind of pain, any kind of, you know, difficulty healing or any type of abnormal bony growth. So we were, you know, pleased with that. That was honestly a very simple little chart review and just, uh, I think, probably something a lot of people have wondered about and been stuck in the OR wondering about. And maybe this adds a little bit of comforting voice to that decision you may have to make when you do have a short purchase and not enough for three screws. So. Were any of these cases where there were only two screws on a side, were any of those unintentional? Uh, I don't know about you guys, but occasionally I'll pull up a post-op film of mine and realize that I either missed a hole or I didn't appreciate that there was one more hole beyond my construct because I couldn't see it or for, for whatever reason I you know there's fewer holes filled than I had intended were any of these unintentional do you have any way to know that and secondly were any of the missed holes the terminal hole in other words is there a difference between putting two screws in a plate that's only has room for two screws because of the confines of the of the of the fracture or if if a plate extends beyond your last screw does that is that a more stable construct than one where you with the plate is shorter does that question make any sense it does and uh you know i honestly i'm sure some of those were unintentional like you know thought you had it miscounted looked up uh moved on to something else whether you know maybe the 
resin or somebody was kind of doing some drilling and you're trying to expose another piece of bone. So I would I would say with certainty uh, that there, there had to have been one or two that were unintentional. Now, um, I can't tell you exactly how many. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that. But I, and, and some of these might have been my partner's cases as well. But I will know on a personal level, I'm sure that I have looked up and been like, huh, that'll have to do. Now, in terms of the, the terminal hole or the, the last eye, you know, I will say that uh, I, I I know that a couple of them, there might have been one or two that was the terminal hole, so to speak, that last well. Um, and I've, I know that that happened predominantly in the uh, the more posterior position fractures. And and I know personally that so it's probably it's a plate contouring issue where uh, you've contoured well for flush fit and to achieve uh, two screws worth of purchase. And that last one, just as it bends off or takes a super sharp kind of angle towards the costovertebral junction, it gets a little tougher to bend that last eye, at least with the system that I recorded in this paper. But that wasn't all of them. That was just a, maybe a couple. Um, and that's me just trying to remember. But uh, those are excellent questions. Probably the most valuable conclusion from your from this paper is that the manufacturer's recommendations, or at least the conditions under which these products were tested and approved, don't necessarily match you know the myriad of clinical situations that we're presented with. And I like feeling that uh, the security of knowing that some of these variations in technique are are still safe and are are effective. We all have to you know modify our I hate to use the word but cut corners at times to to get things accomplished and I, it's nice to know at least in this regard that we can suffice with two screws now and then and and get away with it uh, at least that's my conclusion from the study if i'm not mistaken i think you know most of this the recommendations are based on kind of long bones with uh, more load-bearing capacity and these bones are completely different so um, there probably is a lot of room for, you know, I would say uh, deviation from the manufacturing recommendations in that respect. But, yeah, we've done it, and I, I try not to do it routinely, but uh, I'd rather put a plate there and provide some therapeutic relief than um, leave it. I just think that, uh, that we, we, we always um, compare the ribs to all these other bones in the body. I think they're different. Um, I've, I've always had that belief. When it comes to, like, non-unions, same thing. I, I don't think we need to treat them the same way that we treat other non-unions, but you know, that, I, I might be in the minority on that opinion. In general, I think two, as, as you showed, two screws seem to be, be, be sufficient. Although, you know, again, we have to follow the AO guidelines right now, um, but maybe we can get you know, further studies in maybe some large animal models that actually might show us and prove this is okay as well, and um, maybe even you know, save a screw here or there, maybe make things a little bit cheaper. Well, yeah, and each company is different. Right, so each of the recommendations is a little different. Which ones are okay to play with? That's another interesting question. Yeah, it is. I, and I've actually, I kind of just, you know, I predominantly use one, but I'm very open to trying them all. I've used them all. Some of the, there's one or two companies that have a little lower profile or more refined kind of uh, feel and look. And um, I know that in some scenarios where I've only been able to get two with a certain system, I, I know that this other system. I would have gotten three screws. I don't know whether does that mean it's more my fixation is more durable and you know my my plate uh, that construct it's a it's a better fit. I don't know. I don't know. But I wonder sometimes in the future some in the future are we going to look at a fracture pattern, its morphology, and someone's body type, habitus, and maybe even bone density, and then are we going to choose a system based on that? You know, will the systems you know will they evolve to that that point? So let's move on to the other paper. The title is Surgical Stabilization of Rib Fractures Improves Outcomes in the Geriatric Patient Population. Tell us a little bit about this. All right. First of all, this is uh, probably where 
the first research I started doing with rib plating uh, when I started doing it. And I was fortunate enough to have a mentor that in the in 2010 uh, picked this up right after the FDA approved implantation for biomaterials for rib plating. He picked it up and uh, I was part of his first time team and um, kind of had a few, you know, there was trepidation that I guess as anybody uh, probably had early in the experience and I certainly did and I was a junior faculty member and he did all these for the most part and then left and we had a big gap and I was left sort of right, you know what is my belief structure here because it was still very new and heavily criticized um, back in 2011 you know, 2012 I saw like some advanced age patients survive injuries that I knew they routinely would not and then I actually presented some of these uh, just anecdotal findings at a society meeting in Georgia and one of the patrons to this, you know, meeting was an advanced age surgeon from Brunswick, and he he said that, uh, you know, based on what we understand about rib fractures, which was Eileen Bulger's paper, and many papers have recapitulated the same survival uh, mortality. I'm sorry, in pneumonia data, uh, he said, just based on what you're showing me, if I fall and break my ribs, I want you to fix them. And uh, I kind of was standing on that stage, and all of a sudden it struck me. That maybe you know the work in terms of controls and com comparison analyses is already done in my opinion um, and so I started paying more careful attention to the respiratory needs and pain you know scale scores of 65 and older patients because um, in my mind if you've got a 20% mortality risk I'm rather if you told me I got a 20% mortality risk I want you to do something you know and so we were aggressive in our uh, guideline um, that we built and adopted. And a while back, I was able to do a very match control, small numbers, and uh, had it published. And this was sort of maybe our more comprehensive database. And it's not the best study. I realize that, you know, uh, the design is, is not awesome. But it's basically all the patients that we were able to account for in our database that uh, I and one of my partners, excluding another one, did that were 65 and older and, um, and all the patients we were able to account for that had rib fractures that were 65 and older and we tracked how they did right so we already we, we operated we had an operative group where we operated on the ones we thought were the worst and it wasn't about the outcome data with plating as much as it was the people that didn't get rib plated that didn't get you know the proper care they come back uh, they come back as and this is what's hard about it they come back as a fall or they come back as a bronchitis or they come back with some type of you know, readmission diagnosis that's not going to be a trauma. And they have bad outcomes. They have pneumonias and they have, if nothing else, they have this sort of failure to thrive. It winds up creating you know, several hospital admissions actually after a, you know, a single fall with chest wall trauma. The whole point was to really sort of highlight that this is a frail patient population and that sure, in the hospital, they may pull 750 on the incentive spirometer and, and they may have the capacity to survive that admission. The question is, are they going to thrive once you discharge them, right? When they go home and they get stiff and they can't help themselves up out of bed and across the floor and, you know, tend to their own groceries or whatever, what kind of risks are they going to have? Especially when, you know, we know there's mortality data associated with a single rib fracture and we know that there's an ammonia risk. And we also know it's a very safe and, accept and an acceptable procedure. It seems like, you know, we ought to really tighten our guidelines towards how we care for these advanced stage patients with rib fractures. You mentioned groceries. I, we happen to know that you're a, somewhat of a gourmand or a chef de cuisine. 
So tell us what you've made in the last month that was yummy. Let me look at my pictures on my phone real quick. I take pictures of my food to see it. I'm that one of those people. All right, so I caught uh, we caught some trigger fish uh, and uh, got into a lot of trigger fish. So we brought them back, and one like outstanding recipe is to cut them into uh, tubes and you place them into you know, super salty water and you boil them until they float and then you sort of bake them in some butter and garlic and you can serve that over a shoe and it's incredible. Um, but if you serve it, serve it over, you know, maybe a little bit of polenta or, but um, we did so we caught some amberjack and made some super nice uh, smoked uh, fish dip. It was really good. So we did like a uh, mushroom ragu and served some, uh, had, had found some nice little lamb chops. And, that um, sounds delicious. I mean, I know I'm always the one eating, but that sounds amazing. One of my, my our oldest, we're trying to, he's, we're going to put together, we've got a cookbook, actually. Funny you mentioned that. I was talking to the guy that's going to help us kind of organize, uh, you know, this cookbook that he wants to make, which I'm going to pay for it. I'm sure it's not, not going to sell it or anything, but uh, we'll get to spend some time together. <laughs> we'll, sell and, uh, we'll, sell the, we'll sell it. We'll sell it at the summit. Bring a stack. <laughs> I love it. So I have another question for Benji. So Benji, is Dennis Ashley as nice as he seems? He's great. Couldn't ask for a better boss, you know, better chairman. He's a great yeah. leader. Couldn't ask for anything He sure better. seems that way. In fact, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to leave because that's one of the huge reasons I think you go places and on a countrywide scale and, and just kind of getting with a guy like that, willing to mentor you and direct you. And, you know, he's, he's, he's top shelf. Do anything for him. It's impressive to me how much significant research you guys produce at your shop and I, I'm continually impressed by that and it's not just it's not just research to do research it's clear that it's you're trying to answer relative clinical questions so congratulations and thank you thank you no we're uh, we don't have the most resources in the world but I think we do do the best we can with what we have and we enjoy it awesome stuff dr. Christie thank you so much for coming on again uh, Sarah Ann let's move on do you have any updates for the week I sure do. We um, are having a webinar next Wednesday at 2 p.m. Mountain Time. Um, Dr. Peter Cole is going to talk about sternal fractures and non-unions, and it should be really good. So definitely plan to um, put that on your calendar. It's been in the newsletter. A couple other emails have gone out, but another one will go out um, in a few days. So watch for that, or you know you can find it on the website too. Um, <clears throat> also, um, the case review. Uh, case review is on the 26th, Wednesday the 26th, so we're just under two weeks away from that. Really great cases this month, so you won't want to miss that one. I think we still have one slot open, if I'm remembering correctly, for February. And then um, we definitely have spots open for March. And then the April case review falls right over the summit, so we'll be moving that one a week early. So if you have any cases you want to share, um, please please feel free to... Um, let me know because we we would like to get those spots filled um, so that would be fantastic um, and then journal club will be the second Wednesday February once we move into that next phase um, as far as other announcements I've, I know we've been talking a lot about the summit certainly um, while here I'm currently attending the East Annual Symposium um, here in Austin Texas and um, lots of people have been asking about what we're going to do, and and you know obviously with COVID numbers rising, there there's a lot of anxiety about um, you know just current meetings. But we, as those that are 
um, fond listeners of the pod um, remember we had uh, Dr. Eddie Stenium on um, talking about you know kind of the current trajectory and and I'll tell you he is he's clearly a, a smart guy they they announced today that for the second day in a row um, they've seen numbers dropping in some of the key cities they that's not to say that you know we're out of the woods um, and certainly they're you know, the majority of the country is still underwater. Obviously, they have the National Guard being deployed to certain cities, but but there are three key cities that, that they're starting to see some numbers go down where they where they saw the flare-ups first. Um, they're starting to see some some hope that, that perhaps those cities that started earlier are have potentially reached their peak and they are having some pretty significant drop in the past 48 hours and, and see that as significant enough they feel like it's it's an indicator um, so I think, you know, that prediction that kind of by President's Day, we could have burned through um, a lot of the Omicron um, challenges um, that, and that perhaps we'll be um, in a more endemic state um, might be real. There, that, that may have been a pretty good prediction. After all, I, I've not been allowing myself to really believe it because I've been so nervous to to really put full-throated support behind it. But um, I, I really think we may, that may actually bear fruit. So get excited for April. We will have the online version. If, if you register and need to back out, that's no problem. There's certainly, you know, a very generous refund policy in terms of, you know, you can have all your money back up to a week in advance. After that, we've, you know, confirmed catering and other resources. So we kind of need to to move forward as is, but up to a week out, you're you're good to go. Registration is going to be opening. I'm hoping today, maybe tomorrow. I was I've received a variety of of reach outs about the hotel. Um, we are in the process of renegotiating some aspects of the contract, um, which means they have the hotel um, block on hold, so you're not missing it, and it didn't pass you by. The parade did not pass by. Um, it's, it's on hold at the moment. So as soon as we're finished with the contract, it's definitely still going to be in the same place and, and everything is good. We're just, um, you know, a little bit of panic with Omicron. And so now it's back to kind of figuring out what the final expectation is. So they're holding an appropriate number of rooms for us, you know, looking in the crystal balls, trying to figure out what, what that looks like. We do have a few spots open for discussants. Um, and we're, you know, finalizing all of those lists. But um, if you are interested in being a discussant at the summit, please let me know. Um, that would be fantastic. The discussant role um, is, involves a three-minute response, of course, to one of our scientific presentations. Um, they are being recorded and archived because they will be part of our JTAC submission this year. So if the presentation that you're discussing actually does make it to publication, your discussion would as well. So so something we're taking, I mean, we always take it pretty seriously, but it will be especially important this year. Um, but if you're listening and thinking, you know what, that would be really cool, I'd like to be involved, then please let us know because we would... We'd like to do it. We, I, I think, you know, many of our spots are full, but we also wanted to leave a few open for anybody that kind of self-identified some interest. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Let's move on to the final stitch. So um, my, my, my uh, final stitch um, is um, my kids. Um, I Yesterday I got uh, two report cards, and um, oh. my uh, seven- and eight-year-olds are doing amazing in school, oh. and I'm just proud oh. of them, and I wanted to shout out and how... Uh, 
how amazing they're doing. They uh, switched to a new school this year. Um, we, we were not going to a, a Hebrew school initially, and now that we are to a Hebrew school, and even in the Hebrew studies, they're 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 really doing well. Their language skills are going pretty quickly, and nicely. So, I'm just very proud of Amelia and Asher and Asa. Yay! Of Way to go! Watching you guys and hearing you guys and kind of all your energy and your attention to your family. You know, I go ahead and tell you, one of my family members is uh, not doing great and probably kind of, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of time left. And I will tell you, they reminded me not too long ago to spend time, to make calls, to give hugs, and uh, enjoy those that are around you right now. Do work that makes you smile and uh, do things today that will make your future self thank you. That's lovely. Well, I hope that your I hope that your family member is is at peace. My final stitch is just how proud I am of all of our members here at East. It's it's just been really gratifying to see so many of our members contributing, you know, to to projects for East um, and other things. You know, Dr. Choi did one today on machine learning. So it's not all necessarily you know, SSRF kinds of things. Some of them are, are other things, but, um, and Dr. Valdez was moderating a session and, you know, people have just been in contributing in, in all sorts of ways, but being able to see, you know, members of, of our society contribute to this other society as well. And, and just be so proud of, of all these terrific, um, healthcare professionals that, that do so much for us, but also give in other ways as well. It's, it's very gratifying to work with, with so many incredible people.